And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Lord, we are humbled just to read this passage of scripture. And I don't think that we can fully do justice to what is revealed in this text in, in studying it and understanding it this morning. But Lord, I ask that you would allow me as your messenger to explain and to press home so that we who are your children can see you in a fresh new light, that we can adore you for who you truly are, and that we can see, Lord, the beauty of the gospel that we hold dear. So, Lord, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, um, in the spirit of Christmas coming and in preparation for our time together, uh, I wanted to begin by playing a little game with you. Now, some of you have had this game before because you've attended the Simeon Trust workshops. Um, but I am going to hum a tune, and you're going to tell me what tune that is and where it's from. So let's just start out with a, something a little bit Christmassy, all right? Very good. The kids are involved. That's really good. I'm glad to hear that. So that was Jingle Bells, right? Um, how about this one? Very good. All right, all right. What's that one? 
Yeah, no one knows the title. We just sing it, right? How about this one? Dun 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 dun. What's that? Star Wars. Yeah. How about this one? Dun 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 dun. So all I have to do is give you just a few notes, and you knew it. Now, the reason I'm sharing with that with you is because those are all tunes that we call melodies. Every book of the Bible has a unique melodic line, has a unique melody that's flowing through it. And friends, it's really important for us to, to recognize that as we have been going through Mark's gospel, there has been an ongoing melodic line. It began in chapter 1, in verse 1, where we're talking about this is Jesus, the Son of God, and Mark is presenting Jesus as the Son of God, the suffering servant who has come to give his life a ransom for many. And so what we have then with a melodic line is even sections of a, of a song, sections of a, of, a, you know, of, of a theme piece of music, there'll be some movements, but they're all there enhancing this melodic line. And as we have been going through Mark's gospel, we have been coming uh, to different movements. Let me just share a few with you. This will not be exhaustive. But there are times we see Jesus simply instructing his disciples. Remember, he spoke to them in parables. And those parables and that instruction helps to solidify for us who Jesus really is and what he has come to do. Then we see him preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Sometimes we see him performing miracles, healing the lame, uh, the, the deaf and the blind, casting out demons. We even see him raising people from the dead. And then we see him demonstrating his power over the storms, over nature. And as the story builds, we see him confronting the religious leadership, in particular in the temple, because they've slipped away from worshiping God as, as God would have them worship him. But there's no doubt that the crescendo of this whole melody and of this whole song is found here in what we call the Passion Story. Chapters 14 through 16. This is where it's all coming together. This is where Jesus, the Son of God, is being put on display for us. Jesus, the suffering servant, who's come to give his life a, a ransom for many. He is held up so that we can behold him, that we can worship him, that we can adore him, that we can believe in him. See, the gospel of Mark is not simply a record. I mean, Mark didn't just get up one day and say, Let's see, what should I write today? Should I just do a piece on what happened in Rome? Should I do something about Greece? I know, I'll write something about this guy named Jesus. No, he's writing this purposefully to the people in Rome, in particular believers in Rome, to explain to them the story of Christ and to show them who he is and what he has done so that having read this gospel, they would believe Mark's gospel is what we call a gospel tract. It's there to be read, to convince people, to show people so that they ultimately will believe. And so as we come to chapter 15, as the crescendo now is taking place, 
it's necessary for us to pick up on two themes now that are kind of, you know, in the background, there's a flute going on, and maybe there's a, maybe there's a cello in, in the background, but these themes are, are, are entering into the storyline here and have been one of them uh, for a while. This, there's one theme, however, that kind of picks up in chapter 15. You may have caught it. But the first theme is the theme of rejection. And it's important for us then to revisit Jesus' prophetic words And you see the first two passages up there. So I want to invite you just to get your Bibles and turn to Mark and to see this and see how Mark is unfolding for us what Jesus says about what he's coming to do. Now, if you've been with us through Mark, you probably have these already starred, underlined, or places, you know, you you are aware of these. But let's just read them. Mark 8.31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I want to emphasize there, be rejected by the elders. Then Mark chapter 9 and verse 31 He says there, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. And I want to emphasize the word delivered there. Again, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 33 and 34, I have it up on the screen for those that may not be turning in their Bibles. It says this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man... He's identifying himself with that title, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And I want to emphasize there the word deliver over used twice. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so as we enter into the Passion Week, now in the the unfolding story of Mark's gospel, the Passion Week is a word that is used to describe uh, the week of Jesus' suffering and death. These prophecies then are are clearly unfolding before us. I mean, we're just seeing them being laid out by Mark here. And it begins in chapter 14 and verse 10 with Judas. We're told there, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. Now what's interesting here is that the word betray and the word deliver over are actually the same word in the Greek. See, this is all unfolding. The connections, if you're reading this in the Greek language, you're seeing the connections unfolding. Here's the same word, here's the same word, here's the same word. And then in our text today, as we begin our text, we see in in, in verse 1 that the religious leaders, having found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, are quick to deliver him over to Pilate. Look at 15.1. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And then, as the story unfolds, Pilate will seek to deliver Jesus over to the crowds. The word isn't used, but the action and the attitude is certainly there. He He ultimately is willing to do that, but they call for Barabbas instead. So he then delivers Jesus over to the soldiers, and that's chapter 15 and verse 15. Pilate, willing to satisfy the crowd, released 
for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, friends, this theme has been building. This theme of rejection is all part of what Jesus said would take place. But not only that, if we jump ahead to the book of Acts and chapter 2, and it's Peter who's speaking, and if you remember, Peter is the one who's giving Mark a lot of the details for his gospel. Here's what we find. We find that, again, this idea of rejection is at the heart of what God was doing through his son, Jesus Christ. Mark chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It is God who ultimately was delivering up his son to be crucified. But God was doing that through mankind who wanted to deliver him over. Okay? So there is this theme of rejection throughout this whole story, and in particular in our text today. That's the first theme, the theme of rejection. The second theme is the theme of Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now, Mark's gospel has been replete with titles and descriptions of Jesus throughout his gospel. Let me just list off eight or nine of them. Jesus, that's his human name. Christ, that's his his divine title. Rabbi, Lord or Master. Teacher, Prophet, Son of Man, Son of David, Son of God. But it's only when we get to chapter 15 that we're introduced to a new title that is Jesus as the King of the Jews. Now what's really important for us to understand here is that the title Jesus the King of the Jews comes from mouths that are unbelieving, who are mocking him. And yet in their unbelief and in their mockery, they are actually speaking the truth that he truly is the king of the Jews. So certainly the crowds, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, recognized him as a deliverer and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's not until chapter 15 where this, this idea of him being king is actually mentioned. Now, these themes should help us understand, then, what Mark is trying to reveal for us as we come to this particular chapter, this idea of rejection, this idea of Jesus as king. So this morning, I want to bring those together and help us understand what Mark is talking about. He's basically helping us understand that in the context of outright rejection, we are going to see Jesus revealed as the king of the Jews. He is rejected. The king of the Jews, our king, is rejected. Jesus' prophetic words to his disciples give us ample anticipation of the events that will take place. And they are a daunting record of injustice, suffering, mockery, death, and ultimate victory. But they're also words 
that would bring both clarity and comfort to those original readers, the Roman audience that, that, that Mark is writing to. And there are words that will help, help us to solidify who Jesus really is and what he has come to do. So let's begin by looking at the king rejected, the king rejected. And we need to note, first of all, verse 1, that as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away to deliver him over to Pilate. So here we have rejection from the Jewish religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, which was what is the the collective group, uh, that's what it's called, have been on the prowl Uh, since the beginning of Mark's record here, seeking to get rid of Jesus, to arrest Jesus, but ultimately they want to kill Jesus. They don't like him at all. He has exposed them for the, the, the hypocrites that they really are. He's challenged their teaching and their practices because they go far beyond what God has has commanded in his word. He's bested them on many occasions in particular of the encounters that we saw in the temple where they came with these tricky questions and he basically turned them around and confronted them even with the questions that they were asking. He's gained a crowd starting in Galilee where they would would flock to him and then now in Jerusalem, the crowd has been amassed to, 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 to see Jesus and to be interacting with him. He certainly is a threat to their religious way of life, and they do not want him around. They want him dead. And ultimately, he has challenged their failure to follow what the scriptures teach and expose their false religion. And so this rejection is motivated by their faulty religion. This is a religious kind of rejection. Now, friends, isn't that what we see going on in the world today? There is a rejection of who Jesus Christ is, even in the ranks of religion. So religion after religion either loves or hates him. Those that hate him do so on the grounds that his religion is hateful and unloving. I mean, just think about this. His religion is based on rules and regulations that you have to keep, and if you don't, you're in trouble. That's what they would say. His religion is exclusive rather than being inclusive of all. His religion has been the source of all sorts of wars, they would say. Why would anyone want to worship this man, Jesus? And those who embrace him do so only by focusing on the aspects of Jesus that they like or that conforms to their religious system. So they repackage Jesus to fit their own ideas of Jesus. Let me just mention a few. The Mormon Jesus isn't the Jesus found in the pages of God's word, but just one of many gods. And Jesus happened to be the one who was assigned to the planet Earth. Neither is Jesus... Um, of Islam, the same Jesus we found in Scripture. He is simply a respected prophet so far as he is consistent with what Islam teaches. 
Jehovah's Witnesses embrace Jesus as a man, a unique, special man, but they reject him as being divine. See, those aren't Jesus. <laughs> those are repackaged Jesuses fashioned to shape a religious ideology. And so when a Christian comes along and says, well, wait a second, here's who Jesus really is, they're like, no. But even under the broad umbrella of Christianity, there is a rejection of Jesus. He's, he's loved for being one who is loving and soft and peaceful, and that's all they're gonna look at. They're gonna reject anything that would be harsh or offensive. Even professing atheists might agree that the record of history shows that there was a man called Jesus who went around doing good, but they won't consider the faithful record of Scripture as history, as evidence for who this man really is. But friends, that should not come as any surprise to us, should it? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. Those who are followers of Christ will be ones who will be looked at, mocked, derided for their foolish faith. And, and the reason why they are treated that way is because it's not because they're being obnoxious. It's not because they're being confrontational. It's simply because they're, they're simply living for the God that they worship. And they do so, and as they do so, their holiness shines. Their character shines. How God is changing them affects how other people now see them differently. And people don't like it. Archbishop William Temple says this. He's a, from England from a number of years ago. He says, the world would not hate angels for being angelic, but it does hate men for being Christians. It grudges them their new character. It is tormented by their peace. It is infuriated by their joy. You see, religion rejects the true Jesus, and that's what we have going on here. The religious leaders rejected Christ. But notice also that he is rejected by the Gentile political leader. History tells us that Pilate was an inept and heavy-handed administrator. He hated the Jews, and so he would do things intentionally to infuriate them. Now, he was there as, that, as the leader in that area, not so much because he wanted to be, but because he had to be. That was kind of like the, the only option. The, the territory of, of Israel was not the most popular place to, 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 you know, to find or to call home if you were a servant of Rome. And he knew that if he was there, his job was to keep the peace. And he knew that Rome was watching him. And if he failed at keeping the peace, he could lose his job. History also tells us that, that he was a man who was consumed by lust for celebrity, celebrity status and power. I mean, if he could, if he was living today, he, he would want to live in L.A., right? He would be like a professional basketball player who's coming to the end of their life and saying, where do I, what team do I want to go and play for? 
oh, I want to go play for L.A. Lakers. Why? Not because of basketball or soccer or whatever it might be. It's because of all the people that live there. There's no surprise that professional athletes like David Beckham or Ibrahimovic or some guy by James end up in L.A. It's not just about sports. It's about the people who were there. And Pilate loved to be loved. He loved that celebrity status. He loved his social standing in society. It was extremely important to him. Now, history also records that he would eventually fail making a decision that stirred up the people, and he lost his job, and as a result, he ended his life. That happens later, but that helps us at least understand a little bit about what's going on here, what Pilate is thinking, what values he had as he wrestles with the events in this text. So although Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, he was uh, it was his standing in society that was more important to him. Pressure from Rome, pressure from the religious leaders to make sure that he does the right thing with this one that has been brought to him. Pressure from the crowds, ultimately, who want to be satisfied. Pilate had the opportunity to act on the fact that he knew that Jesus was innocent, but he was more interested in his social standing, his cultural acceptance, and the love of the people. So even when he came up with what he thought was a great idea, this custom, every, every time there's Passover, there's a custom of, of handing over someone who has been who's you know, been incarcerated, to be freed now to the people as a, as a loving act to those that he was governing, he thinks, ah, oh, well, certainly they'll take Jesus who's innocent. And of course, we know the story. The crowd chooses Barabbas. And now Pilate's like, well, what am I doing? I, I, this man is innocent, and they're calling for Barabbas. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that, but the other gospels tell us what? He washed his hands. He was more interested in doing what he could to please the crowd than standing tall with the integrity of the process and the innocence of the one who was accused. Now, friends, the winds of, of cultural pressure and the desire to be accepted in society are enemies of the gospel. You can't have both fully. You can't stand with one foot in Christ and at the same time seek to be popular in a godless society and culture that when pressed actually wants to get rid of Jesus. Unless, of course, he's a Jesus of their own making. They don't go together. And friends, we, we're seeing the winds of culture and society change rapidly to be fully charged against Christians and Christianity. Now certainly, we would all agree, there have been terrible examples under the umbrella of Christianity, right? Hip, hip, you know, hypocrisy across the board that shouldn't be there. Hatred, racism, bigotry that comes out of the lips of those who claim to be followers of Christ, you know, the, the, what comes to my mind is that, that church that would come and pick it everywhere and have all these things. It's like, th that should not be happening. And we would be the first to say, 
those sinful behaviors and attitudes do not conform to what it means to be a true follower of Christ. So you, don't, you can't use those extremes as examples of mainline Christianity. But pretty soon, pretty soon, to stand tall in your place of business or in your school or in a public office and identify yourself as a Christian won't be something encouraging or won't be something that people are thankful for. Culture and society has been slowly turning against Christ and his followers and men and women in society would rather join in with what is deemed to be acceptable than stand up for what is true. Because the culture has determined what is acceptable and what is not. They value their position and their comfort that comes from being accepted in that society above what is true, even if it means that others have to suffer for it. Now, friends, that should, that should cause some fear to kind of rise up in us, but it also just should be a reality. We are not like this world, and we're not called to be like this world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be different than. And we're not called to be obnoxious and rude. We're called to live out our, 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 our gospel in the context of this world, but not with the values of this world. And so there's this, there's this wind that's blowing. So that's, that's Pilate. And, and, and the emphasis there is this cultural, social kind of rejection. Then we, we continue on and we think now about the crowd, the ever-fickle crowd. And I call them ever-fickle simply because in Mark's gospel, it's the crowd that is watching and consistently amazed and marveling at what Jesus is doing and saying. It's the crowd who in Galilee ran from one town to another town simply because they saw that Jesus was coming to that town while he's out there on the Sea of Galilee. He could not get away from the crowds, right? It's the crowd who brought all their sick they're possessed, they're lame, to be healed by Jesus. It's the crowd who had nothing to eat and were fed miraculously by Jesus with a few loaves and some fish on two occasions. It's the crowd who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now they're gathered together to see that one of their own, a rebel, a murderer, an insurrectionist, is set free. Now, you say, well, wait a second, how can you know, the crowd here be you know, promoting Jesus or before Jesus and the crowd here ultimately be against Jesus? Now, one of the likely answers is there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. Not everyone that was part of this crowd is necessarily part of this crowd. So the crowd is not just one group that keeps on coming around, but it is mankind who is looking at what's before him or her and just saying, all right, here's Jesus. Wow, what he's doing is amazing. If he's going to heal, I'm going to take him to be healed. If he's going to feed us, great, let's go get fed. Right? But now they find themselves in front of Pilate's uh, palace here, and he's offering Barabbas or Jesus, and they end up calling for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now, certainly Jesus is innocent, and Barabbas is not 
And this crowd is, is now moved and motivated and stirred up by the religious leaders, but they're already prepared for it. Why? Because this is custom. In other words, when they go there and they call for someone, they're expecting for someone who has been found guilty, who likely has been one of their political heroes, and they want him to be set free. They're not looking for someone innocent to be set free. They're looking for someone to be, who's guilty to be set free. But they ultimately are pawns in a politically charged frenzy against Jesus. They gather for a spectacle and are controlled by others, and in this case, the Sanhedrin. Now, friends, isn't that what's going on as we look around? The crowd has been a mob stirred up by fake news and lying tongues and is willing to march, to picket, to act in ways that are incomprehensible. They become pawns in the hands of the media, regardless of what political party one is in. Logic is thrown out the window. Common sense is drowned out by mob frenzy. I mean, just try and have a conversation with someone who's stirred up. You can't, you just can't have a logical conversation. Because they've drawn a line in the sand and you're gonna fight it. And there's no dialogue going on, right? Serious thinking is, is taken as weakness and disloyalty. You're either one of us or we hate you. But you're not allowed to say that to us because you're haters then. If you, you see, you see I mean, it's just all, it's a mess. But this is because it's a mob frenzy. This is what happened in Nazi Germany. Mob rule. This is what happened in communist Russia. Mob rule. This is what happened in the history of Rome time and time again. Mobs that were running around the city over different political parties fighting against one another. The crowd is, is moved by the winds of political influence to do the bidding of those who are in control. Now, friends, that is what we see happening in this text. I'm not just bringing some political argument here this morning. This is what's going on. The religious leadership have an agenda, and they're working their plan through Pilate and now through the crowds. And so, as here in our text, where Jesus is the victim of such rejection and opposition. And but trans-Christians through the ages have been and will be treated in kind. And I thought, you know, Lord, wouldn't it be great if we had like an illustration of this? And this week, just look for a quick illustration. There it was, right here in our local neighborhood. This week, um, at UC Berkeley, a student senator by the name of Isabella Chow is facing pressure from Berkeley students demanding that she resign because she was unwilling to vote for or against a resolution condemning the White House for potentially narrowing the definition of sex. Now, set aside what your opinion is on that as far as the, the issue. I want you to think through the thinking here and the, the kind of mob reality that's going on. This is what she said. My God is one 
who assigns immeasurable value to and desires to love each and every human being. In God's eyes, and therefore my own, every one of you here today in the LGBTQ plus community as a whole is significant, valid, wanted, and loved, even if and when our views differ. She continued, I cannot vote for this bill without compromising my values and my responsibility to the community that elected me to represent them. As a Christian, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good, right, and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. Isabella Chow's freedom and right to embrace and live out her Christian beliefs is considered to be, by those who were there in attendance, offensive. And now she's being harassed and student organizations are demanding her resignation. Last I heard, they had over a thousand signatures from students demanding her, her resignation. Now friends, it's not because she was rude. It's not because she was attacking people. In fact, if you listened carefully, she did not vote yes or no. She was unwilling to vote. She abstained from voting. But the fact is that because she wouldn't affirm what they wanted her to affirm, she now must be thrown out. Oh, and by the way, this is not because she's a Christian. That's what they're saying. Well, You see what's going on here? If you have a different opinion than the mob of public opinion, especially if it is based on a biblical Christian ethic, you'll be shouted down, you'll be harassed, and you'll be maligned. Now, to my knowledge, Isabella Chow wasn't offensive in her speech, but the, the, the crowd of public opinion is worked up into a friend, frenzy to condemn her based on her principles that are rooted in biblical truth. Now friends, this is, this is not too far from us, is it? <laughs> now Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders, he's rejected by the Gentile leader, he's rejected by the crowds, but he's also rejected by the violent, loving Soldiers, violence, violence should be violence loving soldiers. The response of the soldiers is pure savagery. Now, I, 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 you can't read this without just like wondering about the, the, the vile sinfulness of man. They have been given carte blanche to abuse Jesus in the worst possible ways. And it is their opportunity to unleash their basest sinful desires on this one who has been handed over to them. So they mock Jesus as king, they clothe him in purple, and, 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 a purple cloak, and, and twisting together a crown, they place it on his head. They mock him by saluting him as, as the king of the Jews. Some have described his, this, this scourging 
as being like blood in the ocean sending sharks into a feeding frenzy. This wasn't just a few soldiers having fun. As you notice in the text, it says that there was a whole battalion. Now, my understanding of the record of that is that's about 600 soldiers gathered together to have some good old-fashioned Roman fun. You unleash them, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Sinfulness of man will be on display if society releases man and gives him the freedom to let it be on display. Now, the point here is this. This passage is all about Jesus being rejected. Not only have Jesus' disciples fled, one betrayed him, a bunch of them fled, now he is rejected. He really is all alone. But not only is the king rejected, but along through the story, the king is revealed. And let's just make sure we take the time here to think through what that means. First of all, I want you to notice that he is the silent king. The religious leaders had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, but they know that if they go to Pilate and say, he has been accused of blasphemy, Pilate's going to say, I don't care. He doesn't care about some theological debate. So they come up with some trumped-up charges against Jesus And they spin these charges. They manufacture these crimes that he's committed so that they will capture Pilate's attention. They say that he has been leading a rebellion against Rome. He sees himself as the king of the Jews. In other words, he wants to replace you, Pilate. Luke tells us what they said, Luke 23 and verse 2, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Such lies? And how does Jesus respond to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? He responds, you have said so. In other words, you have accused me of that. Has the idea of, that's what you say. Whatever you say, we might say, but not in a cavalier way, but just kind of, that's what you say. In other words, Jesus' answer is somewhat vague. It is true that he is king of the Jews, but not in the way that the religious leaders have presented him or that Pilate is led to believe. He's not affirming these these nationalistic, ethnic, and political uh, agendas that typically an insurrectionist would, would, would hold to. He is not and has not been a violent threat to Pilate at all. So Jesus is silent, and it leaves Pilate amazed. And it's clear from the text that Pilate sees through the fake news of these false accusations of these religious leaders Because what's recorded for us in the text is that he was discerning that these religious leaders were functioning from the place of envy. 
Now, he may, he may be a bad character, but he's no dumb bad character. He sees what's going on. And so he recognizes that Jesus is innocent, and he's amazed that also Jesus is silent before his accusers. Of course, we know that this is fulfilling the scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, friends, I have never been a sheep farmer. But the closest thing I have done in coming to a sheep is to be able to go, all right, that's pretty much it. But what I understand, having read, is that when sheep actually are brought in and the, the shepherd takes that sheep and begins to shear it, they just kind of like lay there and they're silent and they're submissive. And quite frankly, it takes some work to push them off. Okay? So just kind of think through then, why is Jesus silent? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, there's no point in answering these trumped-up charges. This is a mob. This is a kangaroo court. And there is no justice. There's no logic. There's no reason going on. And so if Jesus says anything, it's just going to be words that are going to be twisted. All right? Certainly, secondly, he's fulfilling Scripture, which we've just seen. But I also think there's a third reason, and that is based on that passage that we read, Jesus is surrendering himself to the providence of the divine plan. That's what happened in chapter 14 as he's agonizing the garden. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And that began this resignation of I have to go to the cross, and it's going to involve this suffering and this mishandling and this injustice. All around him is abandonment, hatred, and opposition. But through it all, Jesus is calm as he surrenders and contemplates what he is facing and having to go through. This is no divine mistake. This is the Father's plan to reconcile himself to mankind. Now, suffering may be the path he must follow, but he faces it in silence he faces it with a resolve that is rooted in that divine plan and he resigns and submits and is obedient to his father. Now friends, his silence and his resignation is an example and an encouragement to us because when we go through times of suffering and trial and difficulty, we can be tempted to want to get angry at God. We can be tempted to get angry at people. And we need to kind of step back and have that moment like Jesus had there in the garden to realize that God is in control. He is working his plan through us. And so we can step back and surrender ourselves to his plan. Are we resting in his will? Are we resigned and submissive to what he wants to do through us? It may involve difficulty, trial, suffering, sickness. Now, he is the silent king. Secondly, he is the suffering king. I could have talked about this earlier, but I wanted to leave it here. We've already seen that the word, the word delivered up is throughout this text. And Paul tells us about this word in Romans chapter 8 
in verse 32. He says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. In other words, delivered him up for us all. It is the same word that is translated delivered up there, okay? That, that, that word there, gave him up. Now, let's read chapter uh, 15 and verse 15 again, back in Mark's gospel here, and see the words that describe the physical abuse and suffering that he experienced. But you might, you might skip over one of the more horrendous words that is there. It says in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus. Now, don't pass over that. You don't just and having scourged someone. I mean, a scourging is a horrible form of torture. And it's supposed to be painful. It's supposed to hurt, not just for the person who's receiving it, but for those who are observing it to teach them, you don't want to be here. Now listen to um, what William Lane explains happens during this scourging process. He says, a Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes between, uh, simply thrown to the ground and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by the mark in text, in other words, here in Mark, the dreaded flegulum, was a scourge consisting of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. Josephus records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourge until their entrails were visible, while the procurator Albinus had the prophet Jesus bar Hanan scourge until his bones lay visible. So literally, these... these this, this whip would come and just rip your flesh from your body, exposing your organs, getting down to the bone. If you did not die in that process, then you might ultimately get to be crucified. So just understand, this is, this is suffering in the nth degree, right? This is, this is heavy stuff. And then we're told, and the soldiers led him away Inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion, that's 600 or so men, and we're told what they did. They clothed him with a purple cloak. But just think, this is all happening after his scourging. So to be clothed with a cloak would also mean that you, you have all this blood and you have all this flesh, right? And, and you're, you're being clothed with this. They put a crown of thorn on his heads. They saluted him as... As king of the Jews, in a mocking way, they beat him on the head with a stick. They continued to spit on him while mockingly kneeling to him in homage. And when they were done mocking him, they stripped him of his clothes. Just think about that. And led him out to be crucified. He is the suffering king. Now, he's not only... Silent king, the suffering king, he is also the, the substitute king. One of the things that we get here in the story 
is this picture of substitution. It's this comparison between Jesus and Barabbas. As we saw, the custom at Passover was that the crowd would come and ask Pilate to release someone in prison as a token of his clemency. So he presents Barabbas. Now let's make sure we understand Barabbas is a murderer and an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, okay? He has been justly found guilty and condemned to death. His son, sorry, his name means son of the father. And according to the early church, Father Origen, his first name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. And then there's Jesus. He's the true son of the father. He's been unjustly accused. And according to the other gospels, both Pilate and Herod determined that Jesus was innocent. You see, there's just just opposites here. But why would the people choose Barabbas over Jesus? Why wouldn't they choose the innocent one? The one that wasn't guilty rather than the one that was. Well, Barabbas was one who actually wanted to overthrow Rome in the way that the crowd wanted Rome to be overthrown. And so they choose him. He is somewhat for them a hero. And so they were choosing lawlessness instead of righteousness, violence instead of love, war instead of peace. But innocent Jesus took the place of the guilty one. The one who preached grace and forgiveness is rejected by the people and takes the place of the one who is guilty. And that is what he's done for us, friends. 2 Corinthians 5.29, for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this morning, friends, we have two options, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth. Who will you have? Who will you have when you're facing trial and sorrows? Who will you who you you know, want to, to come and be your help when you're laying your head on your pillow at night and, and asking God for a good night's sleep? Who will you have when the storms are raging in your life or it doesn't make any sense or your heart is broken? Will you, will you call out for Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? Are you saying this morning, crown him? Or crucify him. By crown him, I don't mean with his rightful crown. I'm talking about with the crown of thorns in a mocking way. Is he the king of the Jews or is he not? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Now I want to bring, briefly kind of bring things to a conclusion here. Because I think there's three just ways that I see this, this applying to us. In particular to the original audience. So I mentioned the three questions that his readers are asking here are, who is Jesus? What has he come to do? And then ultimately, how will you you respond to Jesus? So the question for us this morning now is, is that Jesus is being put on display for us to see is how will we respond with what we have just seen? And I think the first thing 
that we must recognize is just a, a humble form of worship. Just to, to see Jesus go through all this suffering should cause in us to want to worship him for what he has done for us, in particular in his body, the kind of agony that he endured to fulfill the plan. And when you think about the Lord's Supper, you think about the fact that he gave his body for us. A text like this just gives us a picture of what that looks like. I'm amazed at what he had to endure. I'm, I'm taken aback at, at how violently he was treated, how shamefully he was mocked, how, how the kind of pain he suffered and endured to be obedient to the plan of God. What we have been studying here is a kind of physical suffering that the Lamb of God, who was taking away the, the sins of the world, would actually have to go through. But friends, I want to correct a little bit of an error. It is easy to come to a passage like this and be so consumed by his physical suffering, which truly is awful in its own right, and yet fail to see that the real suffering is still before him. The real suffering is when he hangs on the cross and he shoulders the sin of mankind and the wrath of God is poured down on him. His physical suffering is a, is a little picture of this greater suffering that is yet to be experienced. And so if we just see Jesus in his physical suffering, we're not seeing him in his complete suffering. Now, a few years ago, remember the Passion of the Christ came out, and if you were able to endure that whole thing, it was just like suffer, violence, suffer, violence, suffer, and that's all it was. But what you didn't get was the weight of the wrath of God on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate crescendo. And I think it would be right to say, well, many men and women we know have gone through horrible suffering and agony. They've experienced the phagalum, or something as vile as that, that none of them have ever borne the wrath of God for sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus did that. Secondly, I think it gives us an honest perspective. Certainly those who are in Rome who would just in a couple of years and experience suffering under the hands of Nero. And what would they be thinking? And how would they be, be prepared here is Jesus, who was submitting to the Father's will, willing to endure in such a way that brought glory to him. Now, they're not going to be anything like Jesus. They're going to fail. They're going to scream. They're going to panic. And if that was us, we would too. But this gives us perspective to say even, even some of the shame, even some of the reproach that we experience is simply because we are identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. And if he was able to endure those things, he is enduring that not only for our benefit spiritually, but also for our example to follow him and to do what he was doing in humbling ourselves before God and facing what is before us in a way that would glorify him. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that our, our future is not one of heavy persecution. I don't want that for us on a human level. 
But we may have to endure, friends. And sometimes enduring in the small things is harder than enduring in the big things. Someone comes and puts a, a gun to your head and says, you know, confess Jesus. And if you do, you're going to die. In that moment, we might say, go ahead, I'm a follower of Christ. But we might be in a context where someone is, you know, speaking badly about Jesus around a table somewhere and we'll shy away from even identifying with him. You see what I'm saying? And sometimes those big things are what we stand up for. It's the little things that we don't do anything for. So this gives us some perspective. We will be rejected. We will be persecuted. But hear this. There's also hope. And I want to draw your attention back to Mark 10 and verse 33, which is where we saw Jesus talking about what was going to happen to him yet. All three of the, his statements have this, and I think it's so important for us to realize. It says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We got that, right? He will be condemned to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. We saw that. And they will mock him and spit on him, and they saw that, and flog him and kill him. We haven't gotten there yet. But then it says, and after three days he will rise. This is not the end of the story. And if you are a follower of Christ, that is not the end of your story either. You may suffer persecution, mocking, shame, because it's all part of God's plan. But we're also left with the promise of our resurrection. That resurrection is part of the, fruit, the fruit and the joy of the gospel that we have been given through Christ. And friends, we may want to hold on to this world because we have loved ones here and we like this world, but some of that is because we have really no comprehension of heaven and what God has in store for us. And yet, as a child of God, we have the guarantee of our resurrection one day to be in his presence. Is that your hope? We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to sing the gospel. We're called to celebrate the gospel because Jesus Christ came with the purpose of, of going to the cross, dying in our place, taking our sin on his shoulders and being that, that sacrifice, that, that vehicle of punishment by God's wrath rather than us being the ones who receive that. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I challenge you to consider that. And I welcome any conversation that you may want to have to talk further about that. Lord, help us today. We are in awe of how you were treated, amazed by the sinfulness of man on display. And yet, Lord, this was all part of your plan. To think that man would come up with such plan 
is incomprehensible. But Lord, you have left your throne in heaven, humbled yourself to take on the form of man on this earth. You, you taught faithfully, you ministered faithfully, but all with your eyes firmly fixed on the cross, knowing that in hanging there that you would die for us. You would be our substitute. You would be that sacrifice once for all. And we this, this morning just want to thank you. We want to be reminded, Lord, of that great suffering you went through for us. You were rejected. You were despised. And you went through all of that because you had us in mind. That is love, pure and simple. We don't deserve your affection, Lord, but we receive it. And we rejoice in who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, may we all worship you. May our lives have fresh perspective. And may our hope be rooted in the certainty of your gospel and all that it means, we ask in your precious name. Amen.